Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Audrey Kurth Cronin on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, How Terrorism Ends, Understanding the Decline and Demise of Terrorist Campaigns. As some of you may know, the National History Center is one of the sponsors of this show, and the National History Center is focused on helping historians disseminate their work to politicians and people in policy analysis and other very relevant fields. It was with this in mind that I invited Audrey Kurth Cronin to be on the show because her book, How Terrorism Ends, is a model of how this kind of engaged, relevant history is written. Audrey is a historian, and she is a scholar of international relations, and she is a political scientist. But more than anything else, she's a terrific analytic thinker and one who is historically minded. So she brings all of these skills to bear on a contemporary important problem, and that is, what should we do about international terrorism? And she answers that question by examining case studies of terrorist campaigns and how they have ended. There's a lot of wisdom in this book. I joked in the interview that I was going to send a copy of it to Barack Obama. I'm not sure that's a joke. I may actually do that because this book really does a terrific job of helping us decide what we should do about international terrorism today and what we should do about al-Qaeda. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Audrey. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Uh, Very well, thanks. I'm glad to hear that you're in beautiful D.C., is that correct? (laughs) Yes, although it's a bit overcast today, it looks more like London. That happens, yeah. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Audrey Kurth Cronin, and we'll be discussing her really interesting uh, and uh, timely new book, How Terrorism Ends, Understanding the Decline and Demise of Terrorist Campaigns. I learned a heck of a lot from this book. It is a terrific example of how one uses uh, deep historical data to inform uh, modern policy choices. Would it that everyone in the current, and I say previous administration, had read this book? Because it is uh, full of uh, what I guess I just, in my plain uh, Midwestern way, would call advice, good, really good advice about what the heck the United States and other powers that are fighting terrorism should do. And a lot of that vi- advice is drawn from uh, a, some, some really uh, uh, r- really interesting and really pertinent historical examples. So, uh, so I want to congratulate Audrey on writing the book, first of all. And then I want to um, ask you, if you would, to begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure, Marshall. Well, thank you very much for the compliment on my book. I'm sure it's uh, uh, extremely generous praise. I do appreciate it. I'm gonna. I'm sending a copy to Barack Obama. I happen to know Barack Obama weirdly. I do. do you? Yeah, I used to play basketball with him, and so I'm just going to send. I'm going to. I'm going to have Princeton University Press send him a copy. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> I'm very grateful for that. You can read it on the basketball court, perhaps. <laughs> Uh, yes. Well, uh, you wanted me to talk about myself? Yeah, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, um, of course, I'm an American. I was born in Jacksonville, Florida, to a Navy family. Uh, my dad moved uh, our family. I have three brothers, and we moved 
just about every year when I was growing up. So I lived in a lot of different places, but mostly along uh, the ports of the American East Coast. And then at one point, um, my family moved to Moscow, and I spent some years living in the American embassy. And that very much changed my life. Before that, I was intending to be a doctor. And then I, uh, this was back during the Soviet Union days, I suddenly realized that there was this big world out there and that maybe I could do something to um, uh, contribute to uh, you know, stability and uh, conflict resolution and issues related to um, all of those areas. So anyway, that's how I ended up studying history and political science. And I went off to college and then I was really lucky because I won a Marshall Scholarship to study in, um, in the United Kingdom. Otherwise, I would have gone straight into teaching English, uh, probably in Asia. But uh, I studied in, at Oxford and did a degree in international relations and then came back to the United States. And since then, I've worked uh, both in sort of policy-relevant jobs and most of the time in um, academics. So that's, that's kind of the, the brief story. Yeah, uh, about to, my background. Yeah, I wanted to say you're in a good example, uh, if if you will um, allow this, of what I would call an applied historian. We usually don't <laughs> think of historians as applied, but, but you're an applied historian because you uh, do a really terrific job of bringing historical data to bear on uh, modern policy pro- uh, uh, problems. Is it? Uh, let me ask you a sort of general question. Is this frequently done in your world? Uh, no, actually, I'm kind of an oddity because uh, since I was trained in England um, and the international relations degree has both politics and history and um, all kinds of other disciplines wrapped up into it, when I came back to the United States, I found that our disciplines here in, in the U.S. are very uh, stovepiped. You know, they're very narrow and they don't intersect a lot. So for part of my life, particularly when I was a young, uh, just starting out academic, I had a very hard time trying to figure out how to, you know, how to write and what to do in this somewhat, what I felt to be a little bit sterile environment, um, where I, I either had to do things in a political science way, which um, I found a little bit constricting, or I had to become a historian, which I found um, had much less relevance to, you know, the policy. So I've kind of charted my own path and tried to stay in mostly interdisciplinary programs. And and also, it's very important to me to have my work have some relationship to reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's important as well. I, I remember being in a seminar once uh, at a, let's just call it a major university on the East Coast of the United States, in mm-hmm. which um, a lot of historians sat around the table and uh, made fun of the idea of relevance. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, they reveled in the fact that their work was completely irrelevant. And I, I, I thought, you know, this is kind of odd, isn't it? Isn't, who's paying the bills here exactly? And uh, so I, I, I agree with you completely. I can't say that my work is t- tremendously uh, relevant, but I do try to make it um, available to, in a easy-to-understand and digest way, a, a lot of people who might use it. And I think you do a much better job than almost anybody I've ever had on this show, I would say, because you um, work in a, a policy-rich environment. Now, let me ask you this. How, in your current job, um, or more generally, let's say, uh, are you able to engage uh, people on the policy side? Do you often go to seminars with them or write briefings for them or uh, position papers, white papers, that kind of thing? Um, well, I've 
I've been uh, in positions where I'm um, in strictly an academic institution like I was when I wrote this book. I actually wrote it at Oxford University. And then at some points in my life, I've been in positions which um, you know, required me to interact with policymakers as part of my job. For example, when I got the idea for writing this book, I was uh, at the Congressional Research Service. And um, I was asked by a senior uh, senator there, who must remain nameless, um, to give some perspective. This was right after September 11th, um, to give some perspective on how to think about terrorism. And he, you know, he told me, he said, you know, he said, Audrey, I'm, I'm pretty frustrated because I'm constantly going to briefings where they're talking about the threat and the fact that we may be hit again at any time. And, and I'm, I just don't really understand where this uh, terrorism has come from. I don't really understand how to look at it in a broader in a broader way. How can I gain some perspective that's beyond our fear of being attacked in the next hour? And I said, well, sir, you know, one way to do that is to think about the fact that these campaigns over the hundreds or even thousands of years that we've experienced terrorism, these campaigns come to an end. Mm-hmm. So that was one example um, of dealing with someone who was, you know, not a policymaker in the executive branch, but in this case, you know, in the legislative branch in the United States, who who wanted a kind of a a, a way to deal with a very tough policy issue, but but in um, you know historically based and understandable way. Well, I think you bring a terrific uh, historical acumen to the problem. One of the things that is brought up again and again in the book, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, is that in each one of these instances, it seems that the uh, powers that be uh, believe that this is the first time this has ever happened, and they go through a kind of uh, series of impulses uh, to strike back or to try to decapitate the organization they're opposing or something like this. But actually, it's not the first time we've been through this, we collectively as humanity, at all. And we can actually look um, in a kind of, I would almost say, a little bit of an old-fashioned but very useful way uh, at the lessons which previous instances of counterterrorism have given us. And and I think your book does a terrific job of that. So, I mean, uh, it's relevant on every page. My, um, a good colleague of mine, I'm sorry to go on and on, but a good colleague of mine calls a lot of, especially things before 1900, that old stuff. But, <laughs> <laughs> she does much more modern stuff. So, But, I, you know, I think some of that old stuff actually can really be quite relevant if, if you um, if you put your mind to understanding it. I'm not sure Americans really have the patience for it. I hope I hope they do. And I also was going to say, I hope that that senator that asked you those questions are, is uh, still in office. <laughs> I won't ask you who it is, but I hope I must take the secret to my grave. How are you going to tell me that? Okay. So uh, I kind of understand. How did you come to write uh, How Terrorism Ends Then? Why don't you complete that story? Yes. Well, I uh, tried to think of a way, you know, to explain to him the different ways that groups had ended, just sort of just speaking off the top of my head. And then I went back into the day-to-day crisis management because, you know, this was, I think, 2002, 2003, somewhere in there. Um, And uh, I was extremely busy just, you know, dealing with the short-term things. But I always had it in the back of my mind that um, we were all losing perspective in the United States, that the fact that we're a very young country that has not had the kind of experience with this kind of violence that that many other countries have have had was um preventing us from from having a broader perspective to think about 
better ways to um, not to simply be manipulated by the violence. Uh, and so, uh, you know, some years went by and then um, I decided to take a couple of years off and go to Oxford University where I was asked to run a program on the changing character of war. And while I was there, I wrote this book. So um, I, you know, I structured the book according to the different ways that uh, terrorism ends. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one point that you made, uh, Marshall, about a kind of a learning that states go through, I think is very important to understand um, particularly the American approach to, to counterterrorism and to terrorism, you know, states like uh, France or Britain or um, many others, Russia, other states, uh, many of these have started out responding very um, vigorously to an attack because they're unaccustomed to this kind of violence. I, I would particularly say that the Brit Brit British are an example of this. And um, over time, they learn and eventually gain more sophistication in their counterterrorism and more understanding of how to prevent themselves from being manipulated by the violence. You know, in, and in the United States, I think we've got a little bit of that um, kind of learning going on. We started out looking at uh, al-Qaeda strictly as a, a group that was trying to engage in compellence you know, where they were trying to manipulate American policy. And um, particularly given the American experience with air power, where we, you know, f find the logic of strategic bombing very familiar and compellence um, through the use of violence in, in that context, we tended to look at the attack by uh, al-Qaeda as as one way of compelling us to do something. But there are lots of other reasons why groups use terrorism. And these are only becoming a little bit more uh, apparent to us now. Um, and those include, uh, you know, provocation to try to get a country to to re react very, very strongly in order to um, uh, use that reaction itself as a way of um, of undermining a state. You know, there are lots of examples historically of groups that did that, like uh, Narodnaya Volya, the People's Will. You could even argue that at least the catalytic beginning of the First World War was an act of provocation. Propaganda of the deed, isn't that yes. what Lenin called it? That's right, propaganda of the deed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the United States doesn't really think in those terms, although I think we're getting um, more sophisticated. But terrorism is also used for polarization of a population. Um, in which case the idea is to try to divide and de delegitimize a government, to try to um, pry divided populations further apart and make it impossible to to govern from the middle so that you either have to side with the group that's using the violence or you have to side with the state. And that kind of polarization can absolutely cut a state apart. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the perfect example of that um, would probably be uh, the Tupamaros in Uruguay where, you know, they only had, I don't know, I think they had killed one hostage and um, some eight or nine counterinsurgency personnel. But then there was a right-wing authoritarian military government that took over uh, and, um, you know, destroyed what was a very uh, long-standing democracy there, one of the one of the sort of bright, promising democracies, and instead um, killed thousands. Mm -hmm. So in that case, a polarization strategy that was used by the Tupamaros drove the government to, um, to destroy itself. Mm -hmm. But then the last kind of way that this violence is used is to mobilize, to mobilize the population and, you know, to recruit and rally 
masses to the cause. And there are lots of examples of mobilization, like um, in the 19th century, uh, the bombings and assassinations that were used um, by the anarchist movement. Uh, I would even say the 1972 Munich Olympics massacre was a brilliant, um, uh, if, if horribly tragic and um, horrifying, case of um, mobilization for Palestinian nationalism. So um, one of the things that I think is worth considering today is that al-Qaeda and um, violent uh, Islamist groups have been using this kind of violence in order to try to mobilize people um, to to their cause. And if, if you're fighting a group that's, that's trying to mobilize, you need to fight them in a very different way from a group that's, that you see in terms of simply a two-part compellence mm-hmm. against you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think you make a very good point. I, I think Americans look at uh, terrorist acts as uh, largely political acts, and they uh, ask, sensibly enough to begin with, um, what, what exactly do they want? Um, but then we're not very good at giving the answer <laughs> yes. because we tend to think they want things or territory or something very concrete, but that might not be what the game is about at all. I think you do a really nice job of, of pointing that out. And in a way, we are less sophisticated than some of the people we are fighting, I would say. But let's actually go to cases and talk a little bit about uh, the ways in which uh, terrorist campaigns or terrorist organizations end. And, and I want to go right through the book uh, because okay. it's wonderfully structured. Let's talk about decapitation. Um, what is that? Uh, when has it been attempted and uh, when does it work? Well, decapitation is, you know, a very long-standing um, tactic to try to capture or kill the leader of a group. Um, cases of, you know, arresting a, a leader of a group where you're trying to capture them would include Guzman and the Shining Path or Shoka Asahara and Am Shinrikyo, uh, whereas cases of assassination include um, the Philippines' Abu Sayyaf, um, Russian and Chechen separatist leaders, Russia, you know, uh, killing sep- Chechen separatist leaders. And then um, I would argue that Israel's um, so-called targeted killings are um, assassinations, or at least efforts to try to undermine groups by using the killing of the leader. And um, that can have a short-term effect that's very powerful. It can certainly be important when it comes to disrupting ongoing operations. Uh, and many times countries are driven by a desire to prevent someone from carrying out attacks, um, driven to use this decapitation method. But the, the kind of sobering aspect of it when you look at the history is that decapitation really only works um, with certain types of groups. Uh, first of all, when you look at the history, the arrest of a leader has worked far more often than the killing of a leader. Uh, when you had... Um, Guzman uh, dressed in a striped outfit and um, put in a cage and then broadcast on television, um, that was very, very powerful in undermining the Shining Path. Uh, it just it prevented him from being the kind of charismatic figure that he had been in drawing, the, especially the peasant uh, supporters of the Shining Path to his cause. And it was a very powerful way to um, undermine what what had been to that point, uh, you know, an, a, a vibrant and very dangerous uh, group. But on the other hand, um, killing the leader sometimes results in uh, 
transition of the cause to another generation, or it can um, cause the the group to continue. It really just depends upon what the structure of that group is. Mm-hmm. Uh, groups that have ended through decapitation have always been hierarchically structured and characterized by a cult of personality. On average, they tend to be younger than um, your average uh, terrorist group and lacking a viable successor. Mm-hmm. So it, the, the situations in which the killing of the leader actually end a group are pretty narrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... Um how does that relate to – I'm going to ask you this question at the end of every one of these little segments. How does that relate to uh, the battle against al-Qaeda? Well, none of this describes al-Qaeda. It's not hierarchically structured in the classic vertical way. It's much more networked. I mean, there is a hierarchy, but it's um, it's become flatter, especially since uh, September 11th. Um, it's not strictly characterized by a cult of personality. You know, bin Laden has – said over and over again that you know he welcomes death he he's got a structure very well um, planned beneath him for succession um, it's not a young group it's a group that's actually been in existence uh, by young I mean you know two to three years perhaps mm-hmm. yeah. um, whereas al-qaeda has been in existence much longer than that and uh, it you know as I say it's already transitioned from um, the first generation, at least below the very top leadership, on to two, three, or four um, different uh, levels of leaders, particularly in the sort of mid to upper level range. Mm-hmm. So it's it just doesn't fit the category at all right. of ending through decapitation. Yeah. Now the argument that you're that you hear, particularly from those who feel that um, for, this debate often comes up with respect to the policy of uh, the drone attacks in Afghanistan and Pakistan along the border. People who feel that these are very important often point out that they're, that they're vital to preventing operations from being carried out. And that's kind of a different, a separate question. You know, whether or not that's the case, I, you know, that's a matter of classified information that none of us would have access to. But when it comes to the issue of whether or not al-Qaeda is going to end in this way, I think the answer is very clear. It is not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the, uh, I mean, there are a couple of examples I think that people will know about uh, in which uh, leaders or the upper echelon of some terrorist group have been um, captured or killed. One that comes to mind is the Badr Meinhof gang. They all got swept up, uh, and it didn't exactly end their campaign, but it, it functionally did after they shot themselves. And yeah. Another one would be, uh, and just uh, tell me if I'm. Uh, wrong about this uh, would be we usually don't think of uh, 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 Timothy McVeigh and, and Terry Nichols as the the heads of any sort of terrorist organization, uh, but they were in a way, and they got swept up, and that ended very quickly. Um, but Al Qaeda clearly is uh, a, quite a different sort of thing. Yes, of course. Uh, the Bader Meinhof group brings up the fact that sometimes, um, even when you arrest leaders. If they're jailed, there can be another wave of violence that's aimed toward trying to free them. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is also the case with um, Sheikh Omar Abdul Al-Rahman, the blind mm-hmm. sheikh, um, after the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. You know, there was, you could argue that um, there was actually quite a lot that was oriented toward toward trying to free him, and mm-hmm. some of that fed into the problems we have now. Right. But, the, so, the, but, but for example, the, the Israelis have uh, killed uh, the leaders of... Um, 
Hamas, I, I don't know how many times. Mm-hmm. And Hamas still is quite a vibrant organization, so uh, they, they seem to, they seem to kill them every couple of months, and uh, it doesn't seem to matter very much. Um, well, it certainly hasn't ended. No, it certainly hasn't ended. Yes, that's that's um, that is a, a more exact way of putting it. Yes. So mm-hmm. let's let's move on to this, the second um, way in which uh, terrorism and terrorist groups end, and that is by um, negotiation and transition to to some sort of legitimate political process. Where has that uh, happened? Where has it worked? And um, so on. Yes. Negotiation is one of the most complicated of the examples because um, negotiations tend to be uh, one of the ways of ending that works well with others. You know, one thing that I should have said right at the outset is that these are not exclusive categories. Sometimes you can have more than one way of ending that's operating um, simultaneously. And negotiations rarely lead to the ending of a group all by themselves. It's happened a few times, but, but most often what you see is a dynamic that develops where negotiations are um, sort of accompanied by, uh, usually it's a process of implosion, which we're going to get to a little bit later among our types of endings. So um, it's not a silver bullet, in other words. Um, negotiations can lead to the achievement of some aims of a group sometimes and also a short-term decline in terrorism. Um, but that there can also be um, short-term increases in the violence as the process begins to decline and then to peter out. An example here would be the provisional IRA with the 1998 Good Friday Agreements. And... Um, that would probably be the best example. But sometimes what happens is that a negotiated agreement and the pursuit of that agreement um, is actually, in the short term, increasing the violence, whereas in the longer term, when those negotiations continue, uh, there's the decline in the ending of the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the interesting things about negotiations, though, is that if you look at the broad categories of terrorist groups, only a small percentage of those groups negotiate at all. There's only about 18% of uh, terrorist groups that actually engage in negotiations, and those tend to be the longest-lived groups. Um, the average lifespan of groups that negotiation that negotiate is between 20 and 25 years. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, it makes a certain amount of sense because uh, groups have to have themselves somewhat established before a state is going to feel that they need to negotiate. And also, where a group feels strong enough to be able to engage in negotiations, to be able to um, come out of what is oftentimes a kind of clandestine existence and have a process that um, causes them to be uh, a little more vulnerable to the state. But of those 18% that have negotiated, if you look over the broad history of groups, only about 1 in 10 have the talks fail outright. So what I mean is that usually what happens is that when groups that are strong enough to negotiate enter into talks, there's a kind of a process where they drag on, and there's some lower level of violence even while the talks are going on, um, but there's no clear resolution immediately or outright failure. Mm -hmm. So negotiations can, can really be thought of as a kind of a diversion of the violence to a different channel, Mm -hmm. while another dynamic, um, 
such as implosion or sometimes repression, enters the picture and then helps sort of synergistically to lead to the group's demise. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, you see that quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And there has to be somebody to talk to, doesn't there? I mean, in the case of, uh, for example, northern, well, of Ireland. I used to live in Ireland, actually. And oh. uh, so the, the, um, the, the, the IRA or the provisional IRA, they had what they called a political wing, which um, oddly enough became Sinn Féin. Uh, mm-hmm. And then in the case of the uh, Palestinians and the Israelis, there was the, the PLO, which, which had some sort of international standing. In the, and at some points, the Israelis felt they could talk to them. And then this leads to, to my question about uh, Al-Qaeda. Is there anyone to talk to there? Well, um, that's a, the complication of that question is the word Al-Qaeda. Uh, we use that word, and I've used it in our interview thus far, in a kind of a general sense. But Al-Qaeda is actually comprised of many different elements that have different degrees of association with uh, this sort of umbrella name, Al-Qaeda. And I don't think there's any hope of negotiating with the core of Al-Qaeda, with bin Laden, Zawahiri, and um, those who, those 100 or 200 fighters that are directly underneath them. But when it comes to some of the local groups that are spread throughout the world that have um, claimed an association with Al-Qaeda, they're it's a different issue and you have to make a decision on the basis of local situations and local interests. I mean, if you're talking about the Indonesian group, uh, Jamaat Islamia, uh, Al-Qaeda affiliate in Turkey, Malaysia, the Philippines, Abbasayev, or, you know, more moderate Kashmiri groups or the ETIM, the Uyghurs, the Libyan Islamic fighting group, these are all organizations that have been associated in one way or another with, um, with Al-Qaeda and yet they're very, very different. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, one of the most promising ways to pursue the ending of this broad umbrella movement that we name al-Qaeda is to look at the individual uh, elements that have associated themselves with it and consider their, their local interests in a local way, to work with local partners, be that... Um, local governments uh, or even uh, civil society and to make that decision about negotiations in a much more complex way with those individuals. Yeah. I, I, when I was reading your book and, and you, you say a lot about this and a lot that makes good sense, I was th- thinking of, of an analogy that I could use with my students or somebody to kind of to try to help them understand that um, you couldn't end uh, you couldn't end al-Qaeda through negotiation. And, and the example that I came up with was uh, during the Cold War, you, you would think that the sentence, could you end communism through negotiation, would be ridiculous because communism is in a lot of places and there are a lot of people uh, sort of um, uh, 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 frying different fish with it. It's not one thing. It's in a lot of different places and takes different form in those places. So I think when we speak of ending al-Qaeda through something like negotiation or decapitation, we should think of an international movement that is actually variegated in, in, in many ways. It's not, it's, it's, it's hydra-headed, I guess, is the, the analogy that comes to mind. So That's right. And, and actually, I think we're making some of the same mistakes we made in the 1950s when we were faced with what was then known as international communism. I mean, we didn't see any distinctions between you know, for example, the PRC and the Soviet Union. Yeah. And it was as we became more sophisticated and understood the different local 
ways that communism was being interpreted that we were better able to deal yeah. with it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, my experience studying Eastern Europe says the same thing, that uh, people used the banner of communism for many different causes. Uh, and um, we weren't really sensitive to that. Uh, we became yeah. sensitive to it, I think, largely uh, through the auspices of uh, historians and, and policy analysts such as yourself, but it took a while to do it. So um, let, let's go on to uh, the third method by which terrorist organizations and terrorism ends, and that is a success, that they actually ab- achieve their objectives. Uh, where has this happened? Yes, this is always a very sensitive point because we don't want to think about this kind of horrendous violence against civilians um, being something that's um, going to result in a payoff. <laughs> uh, terrorism, nobody would argue that terrorism when you're killing uh, innocent uh, women and children is a good thing. But sometimes organizations that have used terrorism do fulfill their objectives. And um, there are two case studies in, in the book that I pursue at some length. One is Umkanto, which was the military element of the African National Congress with the ending of apartheid, and then Orgun uh, with the establishment of the State of Israel. Uh, but, but actually, the achievement of strategic objectives and success in the broad sense is very rare. If you look at all of the history of terrorism, um, I think I came up with about 5% or so. Um, that have actually, by their own standards, achieved their aims. That's not to say that groups don't achieve tactical um, aims, but uh, you need to listen to a group and, and judge their success according to what they say they want, even as that aim um, evolves sometimes. And, and it's very, very rare for groups to achieve their aims. Mm-hmm. And so is the broad lesson then that a... Um a well-motivated and equipped nation-state is going to uh, defeat, should have some confidence in defeating its uh, terrorist opposition? If it has a very well-constructed counter-terrorist policy that has some sophistication, yes. Yeah, and if you're a member of, say, ETA, this doesn't really, um, this won't be received as good news. (laughs) Well, no. No, (laughs) I wouldn't say so, no. Um, But I I, I do think, again, I lived in Ireland, and I do think that the... uh, the actual exit, I don't know if it's an exit yet, you know, because they've exited so many times that the exit yeah. that, that they've, they seem to have arrived at in, in Ireland is, is a, really a kind of a weird cause for hope. Because I don't know if they, uh, the IRA got what they wanted or Sinn Féin got what they wanted. And I'm not sure that the, uh, I'm not sure that the, um, that the British got what they wanted either. But it seems like uh, people aren't shooting at each other anymore. So that, that's well, a good not, thing. <laughs> yeah, not as much as they were. Yeah. I mean, there, there, has, there have been little sporadic um, uh, episodes of violence that are very worrying. But it, I think it's um, it's going to be a long-term uh, resolution. Yeah. So then in terms of al-Qaeda, there's no chance that they're going to achieve their objectives. No. I don't even think it's worth talking about. Yeah, right. Their objectives are so overly ambitious, they would more or less require the overturning of the international system. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I was kind of a dupe to this myself because I remember after 9-11, I was very upset. And thinking like an American, I listened to Osama bin Laden on tape, and he said, all we want you to do is – Get out of Saudi Arabia. So I thought, why don't we just get out of Saudi Arabia? <laughs> That's me being very naive. I well, suppose. if only it were that simple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's move on to the fourth of these, um, and that is a failure. That is the uh, the, the imploding um, of uh, the terrorist organization or uh, or the um, instigation of some sort of backlash um, yes. against the organization. 
Right. Yes. So those, those are the two categories. The, they, the groups either burn out and collapse in upon themselves or they lose popular support. And there are lots of reasons why um, popular support is lost. Sometimes it's because of uh, government counteraction, such as in Chechnya, where it's just, you know, there's there's such a tremendous amount of um, use of military force and killing and so forth that it's virtually impossible for groups to continue. Um, sometimes there's the offer of a better alternative, reform movements or jobs or so forth. But that's that's a very complicated calculation because sometimes reform results in more sense of opportunity and instability. That was the case with the social revolutionaries in late 19th century Russia. Uh, but sometimes popular support is lost because the sense of, you know, relevance and ripeness of a cause just disappears. And many of the Marxist groups found that to be the case. But um, but the most important thing is what you mentioned, Marshall, and that is a terrorist group's own miscalculations, um, targeting errors, in particular attacks that cause revulsion among the constituency that they're trying to reach. Um, you know, the GAI's killing of um, 62 tourists in Luxor, Egypt, mm-hmm. do you recall? That was yes, horrendous. Yes, I, I, I do, yes. And there was a big um, backlash within Egypt, not just in terms of the government response, but but also on the part of the people, because this was a not only uh, horrifying uh, episode, but it also had a huge impact upon the Egyptian tourist industry, and they felt that it was a threat to their economy. So they had um, a, a tremendous amount of support for um, getting rid of uh, the GAI. Um, the Red Brigades in Aldomora would be another example. There are mm-hmm. lots of other examples of um, this kind of backlash. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So is it generally the case that, uh, well, how to, how to best put this? How, how do you tell, I mean, I hate to put myself in the shoes of a terrorist, but I suppose it's necessary. Uh, how do you tell whether a target is a good one or not? <laughs> Isn't it gruesome to talk about it? It is, yes, so, it really so is. Yeah. Clinically, I know. Well, from the, from that perspective, you want to make sure that the degree to which your potential constituency um, identifies with your target is, is as little as possible. Uh-huh. So you, you want to try to uh, target um, people, if you're the terrorist, uh, who, are, who are hated by the people you're trying to attract. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I, I think that's exactly it. And the distinction that I'm driving at here is one between alienating your potential political base, that is, people that might support you, and, if you'll pardon the expression, pissing off the people who uh, you are opposed to. The latter is really kind of okay, uh, uh, but the former is not. In other words, you don't want to alienate yeah. the people you're trying to attract. Exactly. Um, yeah, and that's why something like, um, you know, there are these marginal cases. I'm thinking of the Beslan Massacre in Russia that was carried out by the Chechens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly where that one fits. Oh, I think that uh, led to a tremendous backlash and tremendous support for um, what was almost like a scorched earth policy with yeah. respect to the Chechens. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's a perfect example. Yeah, that, one, that one pissed the Russians off. Oh. My expression, you can't say that, but I can. Right? Yeah, yes, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. show. Yeah, right, exactly. I don't, you know, I don't want to get you in any trouble. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that one really did make them very angry. But I'm not sure yeah. it alienated the, uh, the, the base of the Chechens. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't, I don't know that it really worked against them in that in that way. But anyway, let's let's move on. Um, to, yes, you want to ask me about Al Qaeda? I think. Well, I do. Yes, exactly. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about Al Qaeda. <laughs> Reading your like, line. Thank you. Yes. That's right. Well, with Al Qaeda, this is a very promising way of ending, because Al Qaeda has been making huge mistakes, 
And there's also a lot of infighting going on uh, within Al-Qaeda about the targeting that they've been doing, uh, killing a lot of other Muslims, calling other Muslims apostates, attacking the economy of Muslim states. There are sectarian disputes going on within Al-Qaeda, uh, the broad movement. Um, there's, there's a tremendous amount of unhappiness about Al-Qaeda creating discord within the uh, Ummah, the Muslim community. Um, and if you look at the statistics of the victims of Al-Qaeda violence, between 2006 and 2008, there was a study done uh, by the Countering Terrorism Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, which came up with the conclusion that 98% of the victims during those uh, years were non-Western and from Muslim-majority countries. Uh-huh. So we can kind of extrapolate and, and believe that most of them were likely to be Muslims. Yeah. So Al-Qaeda is deeply undermining itself. And actually, if you look at the um, polls, particularly since 2006, you know, the few uh, polls are, are publicly available, um, you can see a, tr- a huge turnaround in terms of opinions about uh, Al-Qaeda, about terrorism, about suicide attacks, about bin Laden. Yeah, it's interesting. I, again, I'll, I'll draw a historical analogy, one that I've mentioned before, and that is uh, what we learned about uh, the international uh, movement known as communism, and that is that, at least in certain places, and especially in Europe, it tends to be, um, it tends to be subverted eventually by nationalism that communist parties become national parties and then they begin to resent one another. This was the case in the Soviet empire uh, where people were pretty gun-ho about, about communism for uh, quite a while immediately after World War II and then it was uh, – it basically fell into national categories as the communist parties nationalized. And I think you can see a kind of similar thing happening to al-Qaeda now. I mean I, I only know what I sort of hear on NPR. Um, I'm not sure that's a good source but it seems as if people in Afghanistan and Iraq are – a little bit upset about uh, these um, uh, foreign agents of of what is called al-Qaeda among them. Yes, Um, that's right. And that gets to what we were talking about uh, with respect to negotiations, because you can see that over the short term, these local interests, these nationalist interests in many cases were, you know, sort of subsumed under a broader agenda, but but they're beginning to, you know, reappear. Mm -hmm. And really that we can disaggregate those motivations that parallel with the Cold War is, is very accurate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the trouble with international organizations is that they're international. So let's I'll move think on. You're a good teacher. Well, you know, I, I give it my best <laughs> shot. Uh, the um, let's move on to the, the fifth category. I find it really upsetting that I'm laughing about any of this because it's horrible. I mean, it's just, I, it is. It's but I, you know, I study it all the time, uh, so uh, one has to have a sense of humor, or one gets yeah, depressed. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, so anyway, let's move on to the the um, to the next way in which terrorism ends sometimes, and that is repression. That is yes. the one that I think Americans like the most. We just go and uh, kick ass and take names, and and uh, we'll just uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll clean it up that way. Uh, does that work? Um, well, repression, both internal and external, um, it has ended some groups. Narodne uh, Volya, the People's Will. There was an element of uh, government repression, um, certainly with respect to the Chechens. That was the attempt um, to, you know, use military repression. The problem is that. Uh, repression tends to export the problem to another region. Sometimes, uh, for example, with Chechnya, to Ingushetia, Dagestan. And repression is very difficult for democracies to sustain. It works best um, where you can distinguish uh, groups, uh, their members, from the general population. There has to be a target. And it often requires uh, 
what we would call profiling or discrimination, and it goes against the civil liberties and human rights um, sometimes, placing a strain on the very fabric of the state. Hmm. So the high cost of repression can be very difficult, especially for democracies um, to sustain. And then if the cause continues, the group doesn't end with the use of force. So there, there are cases, I mean, if you want to kill everyone, if you're going to use a scorched earth policy, you can use repression, but the costs are sometimes much higher than the gains. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, you know, it's, it is a way of ending. If you look through history, you can see um, the use of repression. Uh, again, in, in Russia, uh, in Peru with Sendero Luminoso, the Shining Path, there was a tremendous amount of repression. Um, but it's, you know, the conditions under which it works are relatively extreme. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. I, I sometimes tell my students, since you mentioned teaching, that there are uh, there are things that can be done that we, speaking of the United States, could do, but we would not do them um, because they come at uh, unacceptable moral costs. And then I give them examples of uh, other powers, none of them very nice, that have used extreme measures to dampen or destroy um, I guess terrorism or insurgent groups and the one that always springs to mind is the Nazis in Eastern Europe who uh, really did uh, at every instance in which they were attacked um, meet out incredibly uh, ruthless punishment the Russians I think did the same thing in Chechnya I, I know that I have Russian friends who've told me a little bit about being down there and uh, it it, uh, it really is something so unsavory that um I don't know that it could be sustained in, in a democracy. Also, the mass media has something to do with it, too, because you really don't want to see that. Grozny was completely destroyed during the Second Chechen War, and uh, I'm just not certain that's something that Americans could stomach um, or, or should want to stomach. So I, 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 th- this one is, is very difficult because the impulse is to want to go and take them out. Uh, mm-hmm. But you, um, it, it, I, I, I don't think this is a usually something that you want to be involved with. Um, and, and you're right, in democracies, it's very hard to do. Uh, so how about al-Qaeda? Can we go take them out? Uh, well, I think we've seen the limits of the use of military force with respect to al-Qaeda. You know, it's not resulting in the ending of the group. Yeah. So um, I think we've answered our own question on that. Yeah, no, that's right. And again, the example with international communism is the same sort of thing. I mean, you can take one out, but the other ones are are, are all still there. And, and uh, you know, despite the fact that there was something called the um, – people don't even remember this. <laughs> it shows how old I am. That there was something called the international, you know, that there was the, there's the first and the second and there was the third. And I think the fourth was the common turn. And, you know, that supposedly this was a hierarchical organization, but it never really was. Um, yeah. It was never led by anyone. Even when the Russians said they were leading it, they didn't really lead it. And so um, – um, knocking any one group out was not going to uh, destroy the entire movement because it really was uh, it was an idea and a banner it wasn't a, a thing and so yeah go, going in um, it might make us feel good though and, and this is something that I give you uh, plaudits for pointing out that sometimes this reaction this desire to go and uh, destroy them um, can have a kind of cathartic effect maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I think we went through that Yes. Well, that's another aspect that's worth keeping in mind, um, that that states tend to, when they're first hit by a terrorist um, attack, I mean, it's very human to respond very, very strongly. I mean, there's a a passion, and and particularly in democracies. You know, we talk about democracies 
and um, the democratic peace theory that democracies are likely to be more peaceful than other types of states. And although I think that's true in the long run, in the short run, democracies are also reflections of the passions of people. So it's only logical that they're going to respond very, very violently to this kind of a deep wound. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's funny because you have one of my favorite Tocqueville quotes uh, in in the book at some point, and that is that it's democracies will find it hard to start wars and stop them. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right because uh, we we really don't want to be involved in uh, this kind of thing because we know we're going to be the people who will be doing the fighting. But then once we're in and a few of us are killed, it's uh, all in or all out. And and, and we don't really want to give up. And I think authoritarian regimes, just to mention one kind of regime, they have much more subtlety here. And this is something that was actively talked about in the 19th century. Is that, uh, and that's why Tocqueville is sort of good on this topic, is that um, you know, regimes that, that have strong centralized authority can be um, more, they can be more, they can be subtler about these things than I think democracies can. But True, it, and yeah. also they, they tend to control the media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's exa- yes, that's exactly right. In the <laughs> Russian case, they own the media. Uh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> right, so uh, repression is not going to end al-Qaeda. So let's move on to the, the next one, and that is reorientation, uh, transitioning to another mo- modus operandi. Uh, yeah. how, how has that happened, and, and where has it happened? Well, it can happen in two directions. Uh, groups can transition to relying primarily on criminal behavior. Um, that's happened with Abu Sayyaf or the FARC in Colombia. You know, that's not to be overly simplified. Obviously, groups can have both criminal and terrorist behavior at the same time. But what I'm talking about is groups that no longer have an interest in the political aim and are primarily oriented toward gaining profit. Or the other way they can uh, transition is toward full insurgency or even conventional war, especially, uh, you know, they, if they're supported by a state, um, Groups can draw states into a conventional war. Uh, that happens when a group can control the behavior of a state according to its own interests, or even when an act of terrorism just has completely unintended consequences. is a catalytic um, act, uh, as we talked about at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, some people argue that you know, with the current um, counterterrorism approach to Al Qaeda and their response to it, that Al Qaeda has already evolved into being what some people call a global insurgency. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the phrase that's used. And I've always felt that that, if that is the case, that's a very bad outcome. Um, and I, I personally don't like to use the phrase global insurgency because I think it's counterproductive to speak of this movement in that way. It bestows a kind of legitimacy on it because an insurgency is a more legitimate kind of. Um, organization. Insurgencies are strong enough to use military force and attack military targets, whereas terrorist groups attack primarily civilian targets, and they're totally illegitimate. So I I don't like to call al-Qaeda a global insurgency. It also, um, you know, makes, it emphasizes territorial control and makes the counter-terrorist forces, uh, you know, look more as like they're pseudo-occupying powers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, defor- it forces us to defend regimes that we may not like. Right. So, um, you know, in, in al-Qaeda's case, I think it's, you know, it's it's possible that this kind of a transition has been happening. Certainly, if you look at what's um, going on in Afghanistan, it's very worrisome. Uh, and, and it's important to be mindful that al-Qaeda has already catalyzed two conventional wars, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to say. Uh, I, I think the two dynamics that are most likely with al-Qaeda 
are both going on at the same time. And the question is, which one's going to prevail? One is that reorientation toward more, you know, traditional types of uh, uses of force, particularly insurgency. And the other is implosion, mm-hmm. um, failure. And, you know, which direction it goes in now will depend in part on um, what the United States and its allies do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's I think exactly right. Well, w- one of the things that was brought to mind by this particular chapter in the book was the fact that it can also go the other way, so to say. And uh, I just interviewed a fellow who uh, wrote a book about the Easter Rising in 1916. And if you look at that as in Ireland, and if you look at the Irish Brotherhood that led that, uh, they really did think of themselves as insurgents. I mean, they had they gave themselves ranks, and mm-hmm. they drilled like soldiers, and they... Uh, said at least they were attacking the British Army, but then the um, uh, the IRA, which is sort of, uh, uh, sort of born out of that conflict, it it, it uh, much later became something very different, really a terrorist organization. Um, so it can it can go the other way as well. That's true. Yeah. So l- let me um, uh, let me so- sort of uh, try to sum up here and ask you to talk a little bit about uh, wh- what we have learned in general about fighting terrorism from history and how, uh, this is the big question, obviously, uh, what we should do about our current conflict with the thing or things called al-Qaeda. Yes. Well, I think, you know, the bottom line of studying the history um, is to keep in mind when you're in the midst of a terrorist campaign that you shouldn't be thinking just about how how you're doing in the action-reaction kind of um sense. But also, you know, how is it going to end? If you look broad, more broadly toward the longer strategic perspective, you're more likely to be able to work synergistically, to work along with these kinds of endings. And, um, you know, also to keep in mind that the strategies of terrorism that are used historically, that have been used, um, you know, polarization, provocation, mobilization, all those things I talked about at the beginning, should lead you to be thinking not in terms of when is the next attack going to be, because those attacks are likely. I I do believe very strongly that, that for example, al-Qaeda continues to be a very dangerous uh, movement and that the United States is going to be attacked again. None of this is to minimize any of that threat. But instead of thinking about when will the next attack be, we need to think just as hard or harder about what we will do after that. Mm-hmm. Um, because these strategies of terrorism emerge in and, and, and sort of reflect the historical context that they exist in, but they also have consistent patterns over the course of history. And when you can recognize those patterns, you can fit your behavior to work along with the natural tendencies of ending that you see in a group. You can work with the process as it unfolds. Mm-hmm. And in, in Al-Qaeda's uh, particular case, I would say that the key thing is to work with this tendency to implode mm-hmm. because it's um, very, very clear. There are many indicators, and the key thing is for us to um, encourage and allow that process to unfold rather than to make mistakes or do anything that um, that permits them to develop uh, you know, a counter-reaction and to continue. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, no, I like the general conclusion, as you just stated it. I would put it a little differently. I would say you kind of have to give up the notion that you're in control. Yes. Well, there, here, let me put it in another yeah. way. Instead of saying we should win hearts and minds, I think what we need to do is facilitate al-Qaeda's tendency 
to lose them. <laughs> no, I think that's uh, – I'm going to have a T-shirt made up with that on it, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think that is exactly right. Let them shoot themselves in the foot and help them because they will eventually. You know. But again, we have this – again, maybe it's an American tendency. I don't really know. Uh, but we, we like to think that we're in control of the situations, that we dictate what goes on. But actually, anyone who's studied history for even a moment knows that you're never really in control. There are lots of things going on that uh, you uh, have absolutely no sway over. They're moving in certain directions, and you can see that. And if you're moving with them, then it'll probably be to your benefit. But generally speaking, uh, that's really all you can do. You, c- you can't force solutions uh, in the way that um, we tend to think about, you know, we, we're always coming back to things like World War II. Well, we beat the Nazis. Well, yeah, that's true. We did. But this is a different sort of game, and it has to be played by different rules. Let me ask you this, it, and I don't even know if you can answer it. If you can't, just say no. Um, <laughs> the, um, do you think that the uh, – the Bush and Obama administrations, either separately or together, are handling Al Qaeda in the right way. Well, I can't really get into details <laughs> okay. of policy. <laughs> I just want to. I think there have been some strategic gains made. Let's put it uh, that way. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Do you have you have you given? Um, and I hope you say in answer to this, yes. Uh, the have you given um, a lot of talks in the administration, either the Bush administration or the. Uh, um, the Obama administration have they asked for your advice about these things? Are you talking to them? Yeah. Can you even can you even answer that? I don't even know. I I think that's all I'll say is yes. yes. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm really glad to hear that. I, I, I I'm that's very heartening. Um, well, one of the people who sponsor or one of the groups that sponsor this this podcast is the National History Center, and they uh, are involved in attempts to help historians get the ear of politicians and policymakers. And I, I think that you know your work is a terrific example of how that uh, general uh, goal can be achieved. And, uh, you know, I, I want to ap- applaud you for it. I always tell people that history does really matter if you put it in the right way, and I believe you've demonstrated it with this book, and I, I hope it sells a bazillion copies. And as I say, I'm going to um, have Princeton send a copy to, to Barack, and I'm, I'm sure I hope he reads it. He's a busy guy, though. <laughs> you know, he's, got, he's got a lot on his plate. Let me. Uh, we've taken up a really a lot of your time. Uh, Audrey, thank you very much. And uh, let me... Uh, close the interview by asking our traditional final question, and that is, what, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, I'm working on a long study that will probably become a book, which looks at situations where terrorists use uh, catalysts and in order to, to um, cause states to use violence, and particularly, what's the potential for uh, non-state groups to um, catalyze a war that might involve nuclear weapons. Oh, yeah. No, that's a, that is a very, yeah, that, that I can hardly think of a more important project than that. That's <laughs> well, a, it's a really good one. I hope that when the, the book comes out, you'll uh, come back on the show. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it, Mark. It's absolutely been my pleasure. I've learned, I've learned a lot. I should tell our listeners that we've been talking to Audrey Kurth Cronin about her terrific book, How Terrorism Ends, Understanding the Decline and Demise of Terrorist Campaigns. Audrey, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Marshall. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Audrey Kurth Cronin about her new book, How Terrorism Ends, Understanding the Decline and Demise of Terrorist Campaigns. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.